So my name's Alan. I think everybody here might know who I am. Uh, if you look around, there's a lot of people gone today, which is a good thing in many ways because a lot of them are at church camp this week. So a rainy day, kind of dreary outside, uh, kind of dark in here, a lot of people gone, can make it hard sometimes to be in a worshipful mood. Anybody else there today a little distracted? I'm fighting it myself. Just got to confess it. Yeah, I've been praying about it all morning. Like, man, I, I want to be more in the mood. The songs help. The songs help. Seeing you guys praise God and hearing you blend your voices, it really kind of helps move me forward. And I appreciate that. Um, and today what we're going to try and do is we're going to continue on in a lesson series called Foolproof. Now, what we've been looking for is godly wisdom. And we've been looking for it specifically out of the book of Proverbs. Each week what we've been doing, if you've been here for them, is we've been taking a different topic and seeing what godly wisdom there is in Proverbs to address that specific topic. Now, I can't remember if, if Tim covered this or not, so I'm going to try and cover it anyway. Uh, what is wisdom? If we're talking about godly wisdom, we'll get to the godly part in a minute, but first of all, what's wisdom? Everybody knows what wisdom is, right? And yet it's kind of tough to define. There are some words that we deal with that we're so familiar with that we think we know what they mean. And sometimes we find out, um, maybe there's more to that word than what we thought. According to Wikipedia, wisdom is the ability to contemplate, to think, and to act productively using knowledge, experience, understanding, common sense, and insight. How many people think they nailed it? I think they did a really good job with that. It's a little tough for me to keep that all in my head, though, because it's a little wordy. Someone gave me this definition years ago, and it's worked really well for me. Wisdom is living with skill. It's a little shorter, right? It's living with skill. Basically, what that means is it's knowing. Wisdom is knowing how stuff works and doing things the right way to get the best results. That's wisdom. The Bible says that there are two kinds of wisdom. There's, can you guess them? Worldly wisdom, basically the, the, the common wisdom that is in the prevailing winds that we see and in, in, interact with every day. And then there's godly wisdom. It's important to note that nobody in the Bible denies that there's wisdom in the world. It's a wisdom. It's a type of wisdom. Uh, it's not on the same par with godly wisdom. In fact, uh, if you look at 1 Corinthians 3, 18 through 19, Paul said this. He says, don't fool yourselves. Don't think you can be wise merely by being up to date with the times. What the world calls smart, God calls stupid. I've been on the planet now for almost 60 years. And I've been aware for a good chunk of those now. And I can't recall, Bob, can you recall? I think you might be the senior person here on this morning. Can you recall a time where there's been more stupid stuff that is being put out as wise? I can't think of a time. Maybe in the late 60s. How many of you guys were 
adults around 1969 in that area. Some of you guys remember that, and I've talked with some of you guys. There are a lot of similarities. Our society was in an uproar, and there are groups of people who are saying, well, what you think is wise isn't wise. Free love was one of those things, remember? Uh, what was it? Tune in, turn on, drop out. Timothy Leary, I think, was the guy's name. And that was supposed to be wise. And a lot of people thought, well, that is what it would be like to have some more skill in living. And they put those kinds of ideas into their lives. How did it turn out for them? Not real good. Uh, James, in his letter, he draws a contrast between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. And he's dealing with some, two specific things that he's going to be talking about here. But the contrast between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom, I think you're going to see him describe it here. And it's shocking how sharp the difference is between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. James says, if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts. By the way, does anybody here know somebody who harbors bitter envy and selfish ambition in their heart? If you do, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Now, bitter envy and selfish ambition. I have known people who did boast about having that in their heart. I remember living in the 80s when greed was good. You remember those, those days? I still think that that's still a, a worldly wisdom that's still somewhat embraced out there. But bitterness and envy and jealousy are sometimes thought of as good things in the world around us. And so James is talking right at it. And the last thing that he said besides it being not from above, but from down here, he said it's earthly. That's worldly, right? He says it's unspiritual, which we're here because we want to be spiritual. And he says it's demonic. Did that last one catch anybody and make you go, ooh? It caught me when I read it. Demonic, man. I wouldn't say things are demonic unless I'm really down on it. How about you? Is James really down on worldly wisdom? This being up to date with the times philosophy. Where does James stand on that? He's not good on it. He says it's demonic. And he makes his point, he says in verse 16, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven, here's the contrast, is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Anybody got a problem with anything in that list? Those are good things to have. The contrast between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom is incredibly sharp. And yet if you think about it, if you had two big circles, godly wisdom over here and worldly wisdom over here, you know there's going to be times whenever they overlap a little, aren't there? There are going to be times whenever worldly wisdom sounds right even to a Christian. 
Yeah. But that doesn't make it godly wisdom. That doesn't mean that you're living with skill. And right now we have a lot of Christians that are getting pulled to try to be pulled into this idea of being up to date with the times. Pronouns. We've got to use the right pronouns now. That's up to date with the times. I'm not going to weigh in on that. I, I don't want to be distracted by too many current politically charged dynamics that we're dealing with in our society, but it's safe to say that there are plenty of them out there that as Christians, we do or should have a problem with because it is not godly wisdom. And yet there's sometimes they make it sound good enough that some Christians get pulled into it. Have I, how you doing? Have I lost anybody? Am I saying anything you're not familiar with yet? Okay, we're all on the same sheet of paper. Very good. In this series, we're looking for godly wisdom so that we can live with his skill. Right? Ever get tired of trying to do things your own way and watching it backfire and go wrong? In the days before YouTube, do you ever try to work on your car or your, or your house? It was a little dicey. If you didn't have somebody with some wisdom to tell you what to do, the results could be kind of crazy. One of the things that I learned when I first got here back in 1991, we were a smaller church at the time, and one of the things that we talked about was, are you seeking advice? That was kind of like YouTube for that generation before there was YouTube. It was like, okay, well, let me gather some opinions before I get into something so I don't find myself going down the wrong road and then have to figure my way out of it. And so I kind of gravitated towards that because I was really benefiting from getting wisdom from other people. I had to do my uh, my kitchen floor one time. It looked really bad. We had this 125-year-old house, and uh, I wanted to redo the kitchen floor because it was a brown linoleum. And I always wanted tile, ceramic tile. I thought, well, that really looks sharp. And we had a local hardware store that... Uh, put all of their stuff they were clearing out. It was, I forget what the name of it was, but it was down off the belt line. Anyhow, they uh, they had all their tile like like a nickel for each one. I thought, I can afford it now. So I bought this, and I'm talking to a guy and saying, well, listen, this is the kind of house I'm in, and I'm getting all the kind of advice I can about how to put this floor in. And I, I'm being as humble as I can be. I'm asking him, he's telling me exactly how to do it. He told me wrong. He told me wrong. I put it in, and it looked great, didn't it, Chris? For about two weeks. And I could go into explaining exactly what all I did wrong, what all he told me to do that was actually wrong, but that thing was over-glorified gravel by a couple of years. And it was years before I ever got up the courage to try to do anything else with it. By that time, I had done so much research, and I talked to people who could tell me what I did wrong, and I got a better result. It's kind of like worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom. And so as we're in this series, we're looking for godly wisdom so that we don't fall into the worldly wisdom and get bad results. Now, working on your house is one level. But what about when you're working on your marriage? What if you're working on your, your kids? Or your career? What about your salvation? I mean, we're encouraged to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That, that's a passage that needs a lot more unpacking. But we need godly wisdom, right? 
There are three books in the Bible that are known as wisdom books or wisdom literature. One is Proverbs, that's the one that we're looking at. The other one is Ecclesiastes, and the third is Job. And we're just, for whatever reason, just looking at Proverbs. And this week, what we're going to be talking about, looking for godly wisdom, how to live with God's skill in this area, we're going to be talking about the topic of friends. Well, I don't either. And I've learned that with my watch, uh, if I if I raise my arms and I'm too animated this way and I say something, Siri listens and I, I get talked to. And so that's what just happened there. Hopefully you didn't hear it or get distracted by it. So we're going to be talking about friends. What does godly wisdom have to say about friends? Is there anybody here who wants or feels like they need more good friends? And the rest of you feel like you have enough. <laughs> I'm talking to the wrong crowd. If those of you with your hands down, you can go you know, grab something to eat and I'll talk to the... No, <laughs> stick around. Maybe there's something in here for all of us. But before we get into looking at what godly wisdom has to say in Proverbs about friends, it might be good to talk about what being up, with date, up to date with the times regarding friends looks like. What's going on in America? Can't talk about all the world. That's, that's too big. That's not where we live anyway. We're living here in America. What, what's going on with friendships in America? Because they're probably, as a, the typical American is probably just being up to date with the times. Probably more buying into worldly wisdom than godly wisdom. Would you agree? Okay. Well, I found a couple of articles, actually in researching for this, I looked at a lot of different articles, but I kind of nailed it down just to a couple that I thought made points that were useful. If anybody wants the link to, to any of these studies that I'm going to quote, well, shoot me a text or whatever and I'll send it over to you. But this one comes from psychcentral.com. Psychcentral.com. They quoted an expert named Kara Nassur, lives down in Austin, Texas, and she said this. She said, we evolved to survive in groups of close friends and family. And therefore, a lack of friends increases our risks for anxiety, depression, trauma, and other mental illness. How's that sound to you? I don't, I don't know what all she's packing into that word evolve, but if that means what I think it means, then it doesn't sound wrong, does it? At least it, make, it makes you want to think that maybe there's a point there. She goes on to say, humans are social by nature, and friendships bring us many health and wellness benefits, including uh, bringing joy and happiness, decreasing loneliness, elevating your self-confidence, and helping you cope with stress. Anything glaringly wrong about that? I didn't think so either. They quote a study of 422 women, ages 31 to 77. And it found that being someone's best friend related to higher life satisfaction. Feeling like you belong to a group increased life satisfaction too. The same study also found that more frequent visits with friends, plus how satisfied you are with the number of friends you have, were significant predictors of life satisfaction. Okay, what does all that mean? I mean, I didn't hear anything in there that, that, that just immediately screamed, terrible, liar, wrong. I heard things that uh, maybe could be kind of true. 
Here's the summation of what they're saying with that. If you're happy with how many friends you have and how often you get together with them, you'll probably probably be happy with your life. In short, worldly wisdom, being up to date with the times, says that you need good friends because good friends are good for you. What do you think? Uh, maybe with qualification, there might be some truth in that, but remember those two spheres we talked about. There's an overlap between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. And sometimes they sound the same, but they're very different, especially in how they result, what they turn out to be. So how, how should uh, you go about getting good friends? Since this article is an advocate for everybody needs good friends. How do they tell you to get good friends? This is what they say. they got five steps. I'm going through them quickly. Be authentic. Stay present. Know your interests. Embrace awkwardness. And lastly, get out there. That's their idea of being up to date with times on having good friends. That's their recipe. That's what they encourage everybody to do. Okay, so how's that working? How are Americans doing when it comes to being up to date with the times and having friends, good friends, and keeping them, making them and keeping them? How is our society doing with that? Any guesses? Not that good, huh? I think we all, without doing the research, kind of know where this is going to go, but I gave you some research anyway. According to the research, Americans almost universally see the benefit of having good friends and deeply desire to have them. But things just aren't going that well. I found uh, this information on americansurveycenter.org. Again, if you really want to follow up on this, I'll be happy to give you the links. They found that most American, Americans seem to have situational friends or place-based friendships. Situational or place-based. Almost everybody in America has those kinds of friends. What they're talking about there is people that they see mostly in certain places, such as work, school, the gym, or the park. Everybody know what they're talking about? You got friends like that? Okay. Most Americans do. Nearly 70% report having a friend they see only in certain places or at certain times. About 51% say that they have activity friends, uh, people with whom they participate in social activities, such as sports, hobbies, or community service. And nearly 40% of Americans have online-only friendships, or friends they interact with solely via the internet. How many good friends do you have? I'm not looking for answers, I just want to get you to think about it. If you check your Facebook page, how many friends do you have? Well, according to Facebook, I got hundreds. I should be like a really popular, in fact, I've got almost as many friends on Facebook as the town that I grew up in had. Yeah, it's it's crazy about that. And that seems to be the norm in American society that we have these kinds of friendships. Here's what they also say in the same in the same uh, website. They say, quote, coming out of a once in a generation global pandemic, Americans appear more attuned than ever to the importance of friendship. However, despite renewed interest in the topic of friendships in popular culture and the news media, Signs suggest that the role of friends in American social life is experiencing a pronounced decline. 
The May 2021 American Perspective Survey found that Americans reported having fewer close friendships than they once did, talking to their friends less often, and relying less on their friends for personal support. Here's a, a, a graph of that. And this is really kind of quick whenever you think about it. Back in 1990, the percentage of, of people who said they have at least one person that they consider to be their best friend in America was 75%. said back in 1990. That's relatively recent history, right? In 2021, that had shrunk down to 59%. Who think they have at least one best friend. That's kind of interesting, don't you think? Because in this age of wisdom and enlightenment and being woke and all those other things, being up to date with the times does not seem to be enhancing the ability to have good friends even though people are more aware that they need them than they've ever been before. Hmm. Things that make you go, huh. So how well is worldly wisdom working for Americans when it comes to friends? Not that well. We all want them. We know we need them. But as a society, we're moving away from good friendships. Moving more and more into superficial friendships, which are not the same kind of thing. Why is that happening? I'm not a sociologist, and, and I can only do so much study, and we've only got so much time today to, to try to unpack some of this. But one of the, the articles I read talked about peaches and coconuts. And I thought there was merit in explaining the situation we're in based on peaches and coconuts. Let me take a drink and I'll tell you why. This article said that Americans, when it comes to getting to know an American, is more, we're more like peaches. We're soft and sweet on the outside. At least we want to be and try to be. But the deeper you try to get into one of us, you eventually run into this very hard pit where you're stopped. And to really get close to an American is very, very difficult. Whereas in other cultures, people are more like coconuts. They have this hard outer, you know, just that, that, that first layer is tough to get past. But once you do, it's all good. You know, there, there's, a, there's a closeness that's there. I asked uh, Mark Sakimpi last week, I said, I read this, and Mark has lived in both cultures. He's from Uganda. And, he was raised around Americans, so he kind of felt like he was sort of a hybrid of some of these things. But I said, is there any truth from your perspective to this peaches and coconuts thing? And he thought about it, he said, yes. Yes, I believe that there's some truth to that. What do you think? Did that kind of size up what you think about people that you run into, this peaches idea? It does make kind of sense. So why is it so hard to get to have good friends as an American? Why are we so hard to get to know and get down deep into? The article I read didn't tell me, so I had to make one up. And I'm just going to give you what I think, and you can do with it whatever you will. Who am I? But three reasons that I think Americans have a hard time getting close and having good friends. Self-protection. Self-projection. And self-preoccupation. If you want to know why I think that, just cruise. Everybody here on Facebook? Again, I know I'm picking on Facebook because I've mentioned it twice now. 
Uh, there, there are other ways to validate that this assumption that I'm making, but look at the posts that you see on, on Facebook. I have literally, and I bet you have too, I have literally talked with people that are, I can't stand him. I'm going to divorce him. He's horrible. He's the devil. Well, she's Satan's mistress. You know, that kind of a thing. They are really... And that later that day, they'll post on Facebook, I'm married to the greatest, hottest, most wonderful person ever. What's going on with that? They want to show you all the pictures of their food, all their vacation pictures. I'm not claiming that that's a horrible thing, okay? But it's a reality. But what's really going on there? Self-protection, self-projection or promotion. We all want to be seen a certain way. We're always, it seems like as Americans, we're afraid that if someone really knows us, they'll reject us or they'll somehow hurt us. So we try to project, and we've got self-preoccupation. We think about self a lot in this country, don't we? I think as Christians, we're not immune to this. One of the problems that's always plagued the church for the last 2,000 years is the world having more of an influence on us than sometimes we have on the world. And we're called to have an influence on the world. But on this thinking about self too much, being self-preoccupied, I see it in churches too. I see it with my brothers and sisters. I see it here. I have to struggle with it. Going back just a second for that first survey, what they say you needed to do to have more friends? Be authentic. Stay present. Know your interests. Embrace awkwardness and get out there. Who's the focus on in those five? You. Self. The whole thing is, is oriented around this idea of having good friends is what do I need? How do I get what I need? Okay. That's worldly wisdom at its finest. So what we're going to do now, we're getting ready to get into it. I, I just have another question. How can I have good friends? I probably should have put this point at the end of the sermon now that I think about it, but I'm going to ask it here. How can I really have good friends? Not what that survey said, but... What does godly wisdom have to say about how I can have good friends? Well, I'm going to quote a transcendentalist. A transcendentalist, in case you don't know, is not a Christian. <laughs> they don't honor God. They're, they're not interested in godly wisdom. But a famous one named Waldo, Ralph Waldo Emerson said this, the only way to have a friend is to be one. Well, I don't know that he's a credentialed source to take for godly wisdom, but in this case, I think he's right because he's actually only parroting or paraphrasing what Jesus said 2,000 years earlier because Jesus said it this way. He said in Matthew 7, verse 2, he said, you will be treated as you treat others. You will be treated as you treat others. Then he finishes it up down in verse 12. He says, so do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. Do you want more good friends? I mean, most people here seem like they said earlier that they would like to have good friends, more good friends. You can have more good friends. How? Worldly wisdom tells you to focus on yourself, but it seems to me that godly wisdom from Jesus himself is saying you need to focus on other people. You need to be a good friend if you want to have good friends. What I'm, what I'm going to show you here today is not about manipulating people. Okay, well, I really want Robert 
to be a good friend to me. So I'm going to do all these things so that Robert will be my good friend. I don't think, I would not tell anybody that I can make sure that he's my good friend by me being a good friend to him. But if I'm a good friend to him, I believe that Jesus is saying, I will have good friends. Maybe him, but maybe somebody else. Maybe a lot more than I think. You with me? Okay, so let's get into it. Godly wisdom says, and these are all out of Proverbs. There are many verses in the Bible that could be leveraged to talk about this topic of having good friends. I think all the one and other verses that we run into in the New Testament could probably be brought in. And there are probably several more, but we're trying to stick within Proverbs. So I'm just going to give you what I found there. Godly wisdom says that a good friend is consistent. A good friend is consistent. Proverbs 14.20 says, The poor are shunned even by their neighbors, but the rich have many friends. 19.4 says, Wealth attracts friends as honey draws flies, but poor people are avoided like the plague. What are these two pointing at? Fair weather friends? You've heard them called that before? Uh, There was a a song that Eric Clapton made famous, but it actually was written in the beginning of the the 20th century. Nobody knows you when you're down. Did anybody know that song, or is that just me? Okay. It seems like when you're up, when things are going well, you don't have any problems having people who want to be your friend. But what about when you're down? What about whenever things are hard for you? A good friend is going to be consistent and not love you when you're up and avoid you when you're down. Proverbs 18.24 says, One who has unreliable friends, a fair-weather friend is an unreliable friend, and one who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin. So when you think about your friends, maybe it's that Facebook list, maybe it's some other, are they reliable or are they more like fair-weather? If you're relying on people who are unreliable, you're going to come to ruin soon. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. How can I tell the difference between a good friend and a not-so-good friend? A good friend sticks. A good friend sticks. They don't run away from us. Proverbs 18.24, one who... I'm sorry, I already said that one. Proverbs 17.17, a friend loves at all times... And a brother is born for adversity. Proverbs 27.10 Never abandon a friend. Either yours or your father's. When disaster strikes, you won't have to ask your brother for assistance. It's better to go to a neighbor than to a brother who lives far away. You know, your family is supposed to be your most natural set of allies. The people that you can turn to whenever the rest of the world can't be relied on, it's your family. That, they're, that you're supposed to be able to rely on. If you're the kind of person that abandons friends whenever they're down, then you're going to have to rely on your family. And what my brother is like three and a half hours roughly that way. If I've got a pro, if my basement is flooded, it's going to be a while before I get any kind of help. But if I haven't been the kind of guy that abandoned my friends, if I showed up for them, if I'm the kind of guy that would stick through thick and thin, I'll have a lot more friends that are closer at hand to help me out whenever I need help. So, do I want good friends? 
What's the first step for me having more good friends? Well, the first one is I've got to be consistent because a good friend is consistent. I've got to love people and be there for them, whether they're up or whether they're down. Second thing that I need to do, a good friend speaks with candor. A good friend speaks with candor. What is candor? I don't use that word a lot. Candor is being blunt, being frank, being direct. I, I, I always laugh and have fun with Chuck. He's in my small group. Chuck is originally from the Northeast. He's lived really all over the place. But Chuck, in the Northeast, from there, he's got a directness to him. And it's a good thing, but it can be jarring at times because he'll tell you, yeah, you stink, <laughs> right? Or, nope, that just didn't make sense at all. And he's just direct, speaks with candor. And, and honestly, this whole thing that we're talking about here is about offering correction. A good friend will correct you when you're wrong. Now, you want to talk about something that flies in the face of worldly wisdom and being up to date with the times. Does the world around you say that a good friend is one who will correct you? No, just the opposite. We'll make new rules to say that what you're doing is okay. <laughs> it's crazy. Proverbs 27.6 says, Wounds from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. In every lesson, there's always a potential that one section or one statement is going to resonate with you as, oh, this is one that maybe i got to pay more attention to. The other one made great sense to me. I think I'm good there. But this one, and I don't know if it's for you, this point, the second one about speaking with candor. Do you allow your friends to speak with candor to you? Or do you punish them for it? For me to try to move forward in this area, I had to ask myself, am I being hard to help? Because my pride and my insecurities for a lot of years made it hard to try to help me. Tom, you used to try to help me uh, whenever I would write songs and things. You remember those first few songs I wrote and you'd try to help me? Was I like so easy to help? No, man. Because I was like, that's my baby. And, and if I did this badly, then if you disagree with me, then there's something wrong with me. I had to get used to that before I could actually have any help. And a sincere friend will hurt your feelings if they have to, not because they want to. But, but they, would, they, they believe in you enough that they're willing to hurt your, your feelings in order to help you. By the way, the people who always are trying to make you feel good are like the kisses of the enemy in this verse. Proverbs 29.5 says, A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. So if my idea of being your friend is only telling you what you're doing right and trying to pump you up and satisfy that, that self-promotion, self-protection, self-stuff that we covered, if, if I'm just trying to play to that, and I don't want you mad at me, so I'm not going to tell you what you need to hear, I'm just going to tell you what you want to hear so that you'll like me, you know what I'm actually doing for you. I'm putting a big old bear trap right in your path. And I'm saying, or maybe the bear path, the, the trap is there, and I'm just not saying it's there. And I'm letting you walk straight into it. That's what this verse is saying. King David did this. You know, he, he blew it with his son Adonijah. You'll find this, read about this in 1 Kings. In chapter 1, verse 6, it says this, 
His father had never, he's talking about Adonijah, his father, David, had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? Now think about it again, up to date with the times, parents aren't supposed to be challenging their kids anymore, apparently. We're not, because, oh, you know, you don't want to squelch their personality. You know, you know, we, we've got to cater to the kids and I don't know, it gets a little crazy. I can't even keep up with it. I'm just starting to tune it all out. But it sounds like what David did. How many parents labor under the false assumption that the best way for me to parent a child is to be their best friend and the best way for me to be their best friend is never upset them? Well, it's a recipe for disaster. It never turns out well. What happened to Adonijah? He died. He died. He was killed. You can draw a straight line And I think that's the way that it's recorded in chapter 1 there. You can draw a straight line from David's decision never to tick his kid off by telling him what he didn't want to hear to him making fatal mistakes that got him killed. In Proverbs 28-23, it says, In the end, people appreciate honest criticism far more than flattery. Has that been your, your experience? I don't like anybody telling me things that make me feel bad about myself. Uh, Chris and I have been on this diet for a little bit now and, and getting somewhere with it, and we're learning how to eat new and creative foods. And uh, two Sundays ago, I, I happened to walk into the back, and Tom's fiddling with uh, some sound equipment and he's recording stuff. I'm speaking to him, and he goes, Dude, your breath is bad. <laughs> And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. He says, man, it smells like garlic. And I thought, well, I don't know what I did. And I come to find out, Chris had had made this vegetable thing the night before, and she had put way too much garlic in. We didn't notice it on each other because we had both eaten it. But the next morning, I'm like rancid. Well, Tom heading me off with that. I went and got a piece of gum, and I kind of stayed back a little bit. Didn't hurt my feelings. Well, kind of. I mean, nobody wants to hear that your breath is bad. I mean, it happens to all of us, but nobody wants to hear it. But Tom was a real friend, wasn't he? And he kept me from messing up worse and offending a lot of people. That's the quickest example. I could probably come up with better ones, but that one just happened recently. In the end, I may not have liked it at the moment whenever he said it, but the end result I do like. And I appreciate him saying something. You've probably had that experience too. How many of us think that our favorite teachers in school were the ones that were the toughest on us? Yeah, they believed the most in us, right? Now, maybe at the time you didn't enjoy it. How about in the church? Have you had a brother or a sister who was willing to hurt your feelings, possibly even risk offending or even alienating you to tell you the truth? And they weren't just gratuitously, you know, just recklessly, you know, rough with your heart but they told you the truth at their own risk. If you haven't had that, then I think you need to look at this whole thing about being good friends and having good friends because you need to have a good friend who will do that for you. But I want to warn you, don't expect people to love it at first whenever you speak directly into their life and tell them something that when you speak with candor, when you're direct... Hebrews 12.11 says, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. It is inappropriate for me to expect you to love it 
the minute that I tell you something you don't want to hear. And if all I care is about you loving what I say to you so that I can feel good about myself, I'm probably never going to tell you. I'm not going to be a good friend. But if I'm a good friend, I'll set my sights for later on. And even though I upset you right now, and again, I'm not telling anybody that you have carte blanche to just start trampling on people's feelings. That's not, that's not godly wisdom either. But there are times if you're going to be a good friend, you're going to have to speak up and say things that people don't like. Don't expect them to appreciate you in the moment. But in the end, they will. So the second step, if I'm going to have good friends, I need to be a good friend, I need to be someone who speaks with candor. And by the way, I need to stop treating like enemies the friends that I have that will speak to me with candor. Peaches and coconuts. i got to stop protecting myself and being superficial if I want good relationships and good friends. The third one is, a good friend, according to godly wisdom that we found here in Proverbs, a good friend offers wise counsel. Wise counsel. Proverbs 27.9, the heartfelt counsel of a friend is as sweet as perfume and incense. Now, counsel sometimes is corrective, kind of like being candid, but sometimes it's just about, well, what should I do with this situation? Should I move and go to that church over there? Take this job over there? Should I start a new business? Should I whatever? If you're struggling with a big decision in life and you have someone who can give you wise counsel, isn't that sweet? I mean, that's great whenever you've got somebody that you can turn to in your life who knows you, knows God, and can give you good advice, good counsel. And again, that's... One of the things that we were told here in Proverbs, godly wisdom says a good friend will do. They'll offer wise counsel. Proverbs 27 through 17 offers another side to this wise counsel thing. Because wise counsel isn't always sweet, is it? Sometimes it's abrasive. Sometimes it causes friction. Proverbs 27, 17 says, as iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. Now think about this for a second. Yeah, you didn't. Sorry. For iron to sharpen iron, what's got to happen? Well, first of all, you got to get them close. Right? You can't wave them at each other. So there's going to have to be proximity. If you're going to have a good friend, you're going to have to spend time with people and get close enough that they can break past the soft peachy part and every now and then get a glimpse of that pit on the inside. You're going to have to be close if you're going to, you're going to have to get these two pieces of iron close together if they're going to sharpen one another. The next thing that's going to have to happen is they're going to have to have some friction. There's going to have to be some friction between these pieces of iron. If you're going to have a good friend or be a good friend, you're going to have to be willing to get close to people and to go through some friction with them. And what's the result of that? Well, there's going to be some heat at times because it's abrasive at times. So a good friend will be close enough to really know you, not treat you like a textbook example of something or you know, give you generic advice, generic counsel that would fit to you know, so many people. But they're going to know you. They're not always going to give you the advice you want to hear they are at times going to rub you the wrong way. 
and maybe even make you a little hot under the collar. But they will make you sharp. Do you want that kind of a good friend? Those are called discipling relationships in New Testament language, and that's what we call them here. Do you really want that? Then be that. How do you have a good friend? Be one. What did Jesus say? The way you treat other people is the way you'll be treated. So do to others what you want them to do to you. Fourth one, the last one. A good friend is considerate. Here's where I was trying to, I kept trying to lace this in earlier in the conversation because I just didn't want us to lose sight of it. In all these things, there has to be some consideration. Proverbs 25 through 17 says, when you find a friend, don't outwear your welcome. Show up at all hours and he'll soon get fed up. It also says in 27.14, if you wake up your friend in the early morning by shouting, rise and shine, it'll sound to him more like a curse than a blessing. Yeah, everybody can relate to these two. I don't know about those in the middle, but these two you, you got. <laughs> what, 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 what ties them together? I think it's the advice to say, don't try to force your friendship on somebody. Don't try to force somebody who isn't ready for that kind of friendship. You know, it may just not be the right time. Be considerate. Think of where they are. Proverbs 25, 20 says, singing cheerful songs to a person with a heavy heart is like taking someone's coat in cold weather or pouring vinegar on a wound. Ouch. Is there anything wrong with Happy, cheerful songs. There's nothing wrong with them, but timing matters, doesn't it? How do I know what the timing is? Be considerate. Whenever I think about what I'm going to say to somebody, do I think about saying it because I feel like I want to say it or because they need to hear it? How do I want people to talk to me? Do that. I want them to feel like, well, I'm, I'm going to go tell you what you're doing wrong and, and all this because I've got this, I'm, basically I'm ticked off and I want to correct you. Is that maybe the best time for them to correct me? Or do I want a friend who will be considerate about where I am at that moment? I, I got this from Tim. He got it from somebody else. I'm going to leave you with this thought as we close out this morning. A considerate friend will ask themselves, one, does my friend need to hear this? It's a good question to ask, right? Two, do they need to hear it right now? And lastly, do they need to hear it from me? Does my friend need to hear this? Do they need to hear it right now? Do they need to hear it from me? I think answering those three questions will move you very much in the direction of being a person who's considerate. And a good friend is considerate. And if you treat people with good consideration as a good friend, you are going to bring into your life good friends. If you want more good friends, and we all need them, be a good friend. And God has given us, through Proverbs and other sources, lots of information on how practical advice 
directions on how we can be a good friend. You're not going to get this from local cable news. You're just not. The world's got its way of doing things, and God's got his. And remember, as we started this off, looking at wisdom, being up to date with the times is not the way to be wise. What the world thinks is smart, God says is stupid. And we want to be smart in our relationships and our friendships. Okay, I hope that's somewhat useful to you today. I'm going to pray, and we're going to be done this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you again for, uh, for putting us together, for bringing us together, and giving us the ability to talk about your word. Um, Father, we need friends. We know we do. Uh, there's just all kinds of verses that, that point to that. You've built us to be a body, to be connected to the other parts of the body. And in you, there is fertile ground for deep, lasting, uh, wonderfully refreshing relationships and friendships to be born. But Father, we have to move away from self-focus. We have to move away from selfish agendas and start thinking about being a good friend. And you've shown us what that even looks like, what a good friend is. Father, I pray that you'll help us to, 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 to sit with these words, to sit with these proverbs, and to examine ourselves closely and to think about, well, how much am I doing that like God wants me to do it? How much am I doing that like the world wants me to? And to wrestle with that and to make a commitment to embrace your agenda. Father, I pray that this congregation, really all your people everywhere, but this congregation, the people here would be described as good friends by the world around us. And that they would see us as people like we just read about. And they would see our friendships as being those kinds of friendships because that's salt and light. And as countercultural as it is, it is still magnetic. It's going to push some people very far away, but other people are going to be drawn to that because these kinds of good friends are hard to find and we just don't see them everywhere. And some people don't even know that it's possible. So Father, I pray that you'll change us from the inside out, that we'll look more like Jesus in the way that we relate to each other and to other people and that we will truly be good friends. It's in Jesus' name I'm praying. Amen. Search me Yeah.
Come wash up. 